I'm Indy Merckx. You listen to The Bicycle Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Jean-Jacques-Henri ou le Gomilo comme sur un billard Tous ces gaillards foncent dans le brouillard On tourne, on tourne autour du tour Nos grands coureurs sont à l'honneur Tous les sportifs avec humour Crie vas-y vieux, crève pas tes pneus Dans toute la France pour votre ardeur on vous acclame Il va bien fort le tendre cœur des jolies femmes Hardy les gars, ils sont tous là pour vous chérir, vous applaudir avec amour. On tourne autour, autour du tour. You may well be aware that it's just a few days until the start of the 100th edition of the world's greatest bike race, the Tour de France. You may also have noticed that book publishers have taken this historic milestone as their cue to commission and produce an enormous quantity of books about the race, its history and legend. You're listening to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. And in this special podcast-only edition, we'll be taking a look at tour literature and attempting to sort the wheat from the chaff. To help me in this task is someone who's read more books about professional bike racing than there are hairpin bends in the Pyrenees. As the resident book reviewer at the Podium Cafe website, Fergal McKay has built a well-deserved reputation for outstanding book reviews that are both thorough and thought-provoking. Fergal, with all these new books, I'm imagining that you've had to expand your library. Maybe you've had to build a new wing to house them all in. I totally missed the Giro d'Italia. Everybody else was thinking about what was happening in Italy and I was thinking about what's been happening in France for the last 100, 110 years. So, uh, yes, it's, it's been a, a busy couple of months getting through the books. What is it about cycling and books? Do you think that there are more books about cycling than there are books about golf or about tennis or about football? That's a difficult question. Um, I think if you look at football, there's probably more individual biographies or biographies of individual teams. But I don't think what you get with football is, say, a dozen books about the FA Cup or a dozen books about the World Cup. Um, whereas with cycling, we get books about races. I mean, we, we've got dozens of books about the Tour de France. Uh, we've got at least three books about the Giro d'Italia now. Uh, books about the classics are becoming more popular. I think that's the big difference with cycling as a sport, is that the event actually takes precedence over the people and the teams who participate in it. I mean, there's a couple of theories that, that might back this up. One of them is that cycling, for whatever reason, has a particular interest in history, more so than other sports, I think, and looking back to old editions of races. Not many people look back 20 years in terms of looking at the PGA Masters or whatever, but they do look back 20 years at what was happening in the 80s in the, in the Tour de France. This is true, and I think this probably goes back to 
to the roots of cycling and to go back to to the very very earliest races, uh, Paris Rouen, Paris Paris Bordeaux, uh, uh, and the rest. They're all created by newspapers. Most of the big races in cycling have been created by newspapers, by companies that come in as sponsors and such. But you rarely find a, a bike race that has not got some media involvement in its creation, the Tour de France being the perfect example, obviously, with it having been created by Lotho and um, the, the Giro having been created by La Gazetta. Um, so the, the, the cycling, cycling from its earliest days has always been rooted in the written word. So I, I think that's what that probably helps keep the connection true to the present, that we keep going back to the written word for the sport. Because really, in truth... You can spend a lot of time watching, I mean, I'll, I'll be cruel here, you can spend time watching the Tour de France and be bored witless. I mean, a sprint stage, you only want to turn on for the last 10 minutes. You know, you don't want to watch the, the, the four hours build up to it. Um, this is where the written word has the advantage and that the written word can, can create a story that TV, TV pictures and TV commentators can't really do. Because with the TV, you can't see everything that's going on in a race. No, um, you don't see it with with the written word either. But with the again with the written word, you you get it's it's easier to to weave in uh, the different strands of the story to to tell you more of what's happening. But also, I suppose the written word has the advantage of, of hindsight, which is very important, particularly in cycling at the moment. In that that the cycling's history is constantly being rewritten. Stories become accepted, then they become challenged, then the new version evolves, and I, I, the history is constantly evolving. Uh, I think this this is one of the reasons why the same authors are able to keep writing similar books, and that the story is evolving as time goes on. Well, that takes us very neatly to the first book on our list, which is the official 100th race anniversary edition um, of a book called simply The Tour de France, and this is a, a whacking great tome. Um, published by Quercus in the UK, and I'm sure it's available in uh, other territories. And it sort of combines lots of photographs with with quite a bit of, as you say, storytelling from the 100 editions of the tour going back to uh, 1903. What do you make of this book? This, I think, for... For diehard Tour de, Tour de France fans, this is probably the book they want. Um, it's the book they want somebody else to buy, buy for them, probably. I mean, it is, as you say, it's a hefty book. It's, it's two kilos. I did actually weigh it. Um, so you, you're not going to sit up in bed reading it from cover to cover. But it's a great book for dipping in and out of. Uh, Serge Legette, one of the four or five quoted authors on it, um, is one of the preeminent Tour de France historians of the moment and has his name on many different Tour de France books. Uh, and what he has done with this book, and he and the team have done with this book, is each year is done o- over a single page of text and either one to three pages of images, um, and then wrapped around those individual, the 100 individual years of the race, there are stories about the race during World War One and World War Two, um, stories about the individual jerseys, obviously a story about how... Lance Armstrong came to lose his seven titles, whether Miguel Indurain is the, the, the best time trialist race has ever seen, and so on and so on. That's, it, it, it's, it's a good mix of the individual races and stories that are, are of a, a, a more broad appeal. And at, one of the great things that, that Leggett and, and, and them have done is that each page is only about 500 words. 
but they've managed to cram an awful lot of information into those 500 words. So even though I've read an awful lot of Tour de France books, I was reading it and going, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting. So it, it, it's a good way. Of, it's, it's comprehensive, but it's also really just, it, it's not detailed. It, it's not... It doesn't feel like one of those books where it's like, and then this guy won, and then this guy won, and then this guy won, and then, you know, that which, which is incredibly dull. I mean, even if you read a biography of certain riders, certain biographies, which I won't single out, it does feel like a list of race results with a, a, the occasional adjective thrown in. I've, I've written stories like that myself, I'm sure. But um, yes, I think that, that is probably the, the difference with it is that the, the text does come alive while also being packed with information. And some terrific pictures as well. I mean, I'm, I've just fl- flicked it open here to a double page spread of Henri de Grange in a fabulous pair of um, plus fours standing watching with a pocket watch in his left hand. He's watching Sylvain Mass, um, who is on a mountain pass having suffered a puncture and he's having to fix his own puncture, as they would have done um, in the 1930s. And, um, and, and that's just a great shot. It's a gorgeous photograph indeed. Um, I, I'm, uh, for a long time, I, I paid no real interest to, uh, the, to cycling photographic books. That there's, there's an awful lot of, of photographic books. And a lot of the time I got bored by the ones that just came out this year's season in photographs. That It was just one photograph after another after another. With the older photographs, I find myself these days looking at them and, and seeing more in them. That, that As you say, with the, the, the Henry Desgranges the, the one, you're watching him with the, the, the stopwatch in his hand. Um, you go into the 30s and 40s. Through the 30s and 40s, you're looking at the evolution of the derailleur in the photographs. Uh, little details start to stand out after a while and I think the the Leggett and the and them um, in in this official history they've got a very good selection of photographs but I think as well as the photographs what, what I liked about this book was the use of cartoons and posters and magazine covers it's not just the photographs they, they have expanded it this book was originally published in 2003 for the centenary edition of the tour and 10 years later what they've done is they've stripped down some of the text in order to put in the extra 10 years, but they've also changed an awful lot of the images and added new images, uh, adding in, as I say, the cartoons and the magazine covers and the posters. I mean, the big revision in this book is the Armstrong story, because that will have been told in a very different way in 2003. Have you got the 2003 edition of the book? I don't have it handy, I have read it. Because, Um, I mean, it's really interesting, the way that this new edition talks about it, it's almost as if we knew all along. It's real hindsight stuff, whereas I imagine the 2003 edition would have been celebrating Lance's great triumph. Well, in 2003, he had only won, what was it, four... Well, that's enough to put him up there. Yes, but yes, they, they, they were overflowing with praise for him. He was the hero of the hour and the, the man who had saved the tour back then. And I'll point you to, to the problem with, with it this year, is that, you know, Lance Armstrong has had a seven-title strip. We know that something big went on during the 1990s. Most people can date the, the arrival of EPO in the Peloton to 1991. And if you look at what happened uh, in, in 1991, it's the, the rise of Miguel Indurain. So, you know, there's got to be a question mark over, over Miguel Indurain's five victories. But this book, 
doesn't ask that question. Um, and actually champions Miguel Indrian as the best time trialist the race has ever seen. You know, and in five years and ten years, who knows, the Spanish might have done a USADA on on, on Indrian and they will be putting out a different version of the book where, as you say, with hindsight, they will be now saying, well, that Miguel, we always knew there was something wrong there. The criticism I, I would make of this book is that it is, as the title says, the official history of the book, uh, of the race, sorry. So you, they, it, it's... It's the, it's the officially sanctioned story. It's the story a- ASO want us to, to know. So, I mean, I would I would question other stuff in the book, like why don't they tell us how the Emery family actually came to owning the Tour de France? Uh, because that's an interesting story, but it's it's not wholly edifying if if, if you know it. Um, so it's it's that that is the problem with it as being the official history. But the the balance on that criticism, I would say, is I don't think you ever find a single history book that will give you the full story, both sides of the story. So here you are getting a story that is firmly the official story. So go off, find something like we'll be talking about Benjamin Masso later on. Find something like him to give you a, an opposing view of it. We also make brief reference to um, a book edited by Richard Moore, which has got some terrific photographs in. This is another 100 editions of the tour book, right? Mm-hmm. Does that have a lot of the same photos, or have they found a different source? The photos are Getty and Offside Keep, so it's the same source but quite different photographs. And I think Richard, uh, Richard Moore has, has chosen quite a good selection of photographs that... Uh, he, he's he's going for a, a much looser tale, which is looking at images of, of the tour, and it's not just images of Eddie Merckx winning or or Sean Kelly winning a stage or something like that. They're the, they're they're more general photographs of events on the road or uh, crowd shots, and also I think one of the the advantages. Richard Moore has with with this book is um, he found some photographs by an English photojournalist uh, called Bert Hardy, who I think you know something about, um, and included those in the selection as well. So they're they're drawn from the same source, but they are different photos. And the book is slightly even larger than the the official Tour de France book. So the presentation of the photographs is is really strong. They're they're in a very very big format. So you get there's more space to enjoy them well from photos let's turn to maps and a book called mapping latour which is an interesting approach to uh, presenting the history of the tour ellis bacon um what he has done is uh he has taken the 100 tours and he has drawn the route uh of each race on an atlas map of, of of France. So what you have here is two pages per year, uh, one page of text, uh, three or four hundred words, a photograph, uh, basic basic statistics about the race, and on the opposing page, um, an atlas map of France uh, with with the route sketched out, which is actually quite quite good to 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 just pour over and and just follow it through all the time um that generally what you get in in all the other tour books are just little thumbnail maps with the stage start and the stage finish and a a line drawn to connect the two you don't see how the the stage weaves this way and that um this one tries and marks through the towns that it goes through 
um, and just being able to flick from one year to the next and watch the route as it evolves. I mean, if, you know your, your tour history from the early years that in, in the very early years of the race, the, the route was more or less, more or less fixed for, for quite a while, that it was going through the same towns and using the same climbs for quite a while. And it's only in more recent years uh, that the, the route has radically altered from year to year. Um, the, in, in the early years, when they were able to do 5,000 kilometers in a year, they could map the whole uh, of the contours of France in in one single race. Since the 1980s or, or whatever it is, um, and they've had to to cut the distance down to down to what is it below 3,000 kilometers now. Um, the, the the route covers a much smaller portion of the country each time, and so changes much more each year. It sounds like something for the specialist, but and I've not actually seen the book, so I can't judge it for myself, but people have said that they've been surprised at how engaging and interesting it is. You know who Paul Fornell is, the, 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 the Velo guy. Um, and one of, the, one of the stories he has in Velo is about how he loves before and after a, a bike ride, sitting down with a, an ordnance survey map and planning the route and then reliving the route. And personally, I'm, I'm the same that uh, if, one of the joys of cycling for me is actually map reading, is just sitting at home with a map and looking, well, this is where you're going to go and being, being able to follow the route on, on a map. And I, I find this book, I mean, even though they're only Atlas maps, they're not detailed quarter-inch ordnance survey maps, the way it sketches the route is quite engaging. And you, you do sit, spend, your, spend time sitting just looking at the, the, the way the route moves through, through the country over the years. Good. Well, I'll look, I will look out for that one. And I suppose that an accompaniment to that is um, the book by Daniel Freiber um, called Mountain High, which is not specifically about the tour, but anyone who's interested in going out and riding on the same roads that they ride on the tour will want to have this book or one of the other books that's like it. Um, although I think consensus seems to be that Mountain High is the, is, is the best one. Where, where Because, you know, the, the tour does go along roads that you can ride along, but a lot of the roads that the tour goes along, you wouldn't want to go cycle touring on. They, you know, quite major uh, roads that are closed off for the day, um, you know, fast roads and, and trunk roads. It's only when it comes to the mountains that you would you would consider riding on the same roads that the uh, that the tour rides on, and you need a handbook um, if you're going to plan your journey. Fiber has a quote from a Spanish journalist Juan Fran de la Cruz, uh, which is that cycling is an unusual sport in that, like all all other sports, it has its own myths and legends. But in cycling, the the, the myths and legends, some of them are made of flesh and bone, and some of them are tarmac roads. And this this is one of the peculiarities with, with cycling that we have places like Lab Duez or Mont Ventoux, uh, the the Telegraph de Libia, all all of those climbs that are as famous as the people who have climbed them. People are drawn to the mountains, and as you say, it, it, they're the, they're the places where people will ride the route. They're not going to people aren't going to go out and ride the route from from Calais to wherever the the, the flat, boring northern roads. They will either ride the the northern cobbled roads, or they will ride the the mountains in the Alps and the Pyrenees. Um, and this is this is where uh, the, a book like Mountain High, what Daniel has done, is taken various different mountains 
not as, as you say, not specifically uh, of the Tour de France. This is 50 of his favourite mountains in Europe. Uh, so you go from stuff like the the, the Koppenberg and Gerritsberg in, in Belgium through up to stuff like the Juclan or, or, or Bisque and then other climbs in Italy as well and stuff like the Gothard Pass. Uh, and written describing the route for the person who wants to, to ride them themselves. So you get the usual elevation profile, um, basic information on where, where the climb starts, where the climb finishes, um, alternative routes that are available, etc. Um, but then also providing a lot of text on the history of, of the, the climb, which is a, a mix, can be a mix of why the road was built in the first place and some stories from how that mountain has carved uh, its carved its legend uh, into into racing history. What great riders have ridden up it, and what 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 great racing scenes have been watched on it. And it's also got some decent photographs as well. Fantastic photographs from Pete Gooding, um, and they're somewhat unusual for a cycling book in that they almost to almost all the photographs exclude cyclists. Um, which is wonderful. The, it, it means that the book isn't going to date. For an awful lot of, of the the other mountain books, they are ver- very, very firmly rooted in the race. So what they, they tend to pick are photographs of uh, of the racers going up these climbs. Um, and they, they date very quickly based on the jerseys, uh, as you can imagine. Um, whereas the, this book, because it is just the mountains allowed to speak for themselves, I think there's more cows and donkeys than bike riders in, in Gutting's photographs. These photographs are going to last a lot longer and the book will last a lot longer uh, and people will enjoy it longer, I think. Well, while we're talking about riding the tour yourself, we ought to talk about French Revolutions, a book published quite some time ago, maybe 10 years ago, by Tim Moore, who's, I guess, a, a humorist, um, he'd be described as. Uh, quite a few books he's got out. Um, and this is one where he, I think, on the verge of uh, turning 40 or shortly after having turned 40, he decided that he needed to go and do a great act of athletic endeavour and chose to follow as much as he could, the route of that year's Tour de France. This is one of the, the books put out by Yellow Jersey Press, who have consistently been one of the, the better cycling publishing houses out there uh, in terms of getting a good selection of books and getting them on on bookshop shelves. And Tim Moore is one of these comedian. I, I think it's fair to call him comedian, um, uh, who picks a challenge a year goes off and does it so he around the time he did this book he did another one where he went off and did uh, a european grand tour taking taking something from the 17th or 18th century and just going to all the high spots in in, in europe uh, as as the old aristocracy used to do um or in another book i think he's driven uh, an old car uh some somewhere so it's a, it's a different challenge last year he did uh the 1914 giro d'italia on a 1914 bike and that book will be out next year i believe so in 2000 what he did was he pre-rode the route of the 2000 tour de france so he went out he set out about six weeks before the race and decided he would try and ride the the whole of the course and obviously he has various mishaps along the way which is the whole point of reading these books it's the whole point of the book is he's an amateur abroad 
and he takes the amateur abroad to a bit of an extreme. Uh, he doesn't get his bike until something like a week before he sets out on his trip, which you or I would scoff at. Um, the, the, well, I guess the, it adds to the pathos that is it, with the humour, the kind of the backbone of the of the book, isn't it? Really? Yes. The, the, this this would be. I'm in two minds about the book because on the one hand it's an enjoyable book on the other hand you're looking at it and going you know a lot of it does look like you're setting things up but personally uh, I I did actually enjoy this book Um, and I think if if you can still find a copy of it I don't know if it's still in print or if you're going to have to go looking for a second hand copy it is a funny book about the Tour de France and uh, one of the problems again with the Tour de France is probably we're too serious about it and we could do with taking it a bit more light-heartedly and I think Tim Moore does a very good job of that telling stories about people like Pierre Brambilla who when he lost the 1947 Tour de France he was leading on the last on the penultimate day and lost the race on the last day um, to a French alliance who didn't want to see an Italian winner Um, when he got home he chopped his bike up and buried it in the back garden which is one of those wonderful stories about the tour that that uh, it, 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 you love it. You love it. You, you, it's what you love about the race. I mean, do you think that that much colour still exists in today's tour, or will we always be looking back to a distant era for those kinds of stories? Do, do people do as crazy things as now as they as they as they used to do? They do. It's it's a question of finding finding them and. One of the problems, I, th- I suppose one of the problems we have today is that it's all too well reported and there's too much reporting going on. So stories like this tend to get lost in the mix. I mean, if you look at somebody like Jen's voice, um, who is God knows how old at this stage and having ridden how many tours, he, he is quite funny. He is he's a very, very serious character, but he's also one of the, the more playful characters in the peloton. So I think those stories do exist today. But we tend to be a bit too serious the, the, the way we approach the race. So it's good to have somebody like Tim Moore coming along and having a laugh at it. And even though, I, I mean, Ned Bolting, I'm in Dublin, so I don't see the ITV coverage of the Tour de France. I have no real idea who Ned Bolting is. And his books tend to, to be very much to the Ned Bolting ITV character. But they're good to have because they're looking at the race in that askance look and going you know it's not actually all that serious well one thing that was serious um, over the last uh, 10 or 15 years is the extent to which doping took control of the higher reaches of the sport and there are a couple of books that have come out this year about that one by the journalist David Walsh who doggedly tracked down Lance Armstrong and, and revealed him ultimately as a cheat um, and the other by a self-confessed, recently self-confessed dope cheat by the name of Tyler Hamilton, who rode at, at one time with Lance Armstrong. And, and let's take them together, if we can, because obviously one's the story from the inside and the other is the story from the outside. Uh, what, what do you make of these books? There's the Secret Race by Tyler Hamilton and Seven Deadly Sins by David Walsh. The Secret Race doesn't have many secrets in it especially now that the USADA report is out. 
that pretty much everything that uh, that Hamilton has to say in it was either speculated about before the book came out or is certainly known now since the USADA report came out. So the main thing with with, with the Tyler Hamilton book is the voice uh, of the writer, which is uh, mediated by Daniel Coyle, who wrote Lance Armstrong's War. And it's a highly readable book. I mean, the, the, the USADA report is very dry, very dull, and very heavy going. The Secret Race, you'll sit down, you'll read it, you'll enjoy it, uh, and you'll get the, the, the basic information that you that you need to get. But what you'll also get is Tyler Hamilton constantly trying to point out that he's not as bad as Lance Armstrong. Um, so it's, it's, that, it's that curious one. The David Walsh book, on the other hand, is quite an interesting book, but fundamentally flawed by having been rush released for the Christmas market. So the USADA report came out in whenever it was, September, October. Um, the whole book has been wrapped up very quickly. The first three quarters of the David Walsh book are very good because what he's talking about is more himself and just the general reporting process. Uh, so if you're interested in, in in how a story is created, how how you how you go out and get the information, it's a book to read about that. It's not so much the book about Armstrong's doping; it's the book about the reporting of Armstrong's doping. There are a couple of books that are fiction books about doping and in cycling. I mean, there are about a lot more else besides, and they are novels in their own right um these are a pair of books called bad to the bone by james waddington which is out in the 90s i think um and a book called consumed uh, written by jonathan buds do you think that an argument can be made that fiction may be a better form to talk about the issue of doping in cycling than fact certainly fiction offers you certain protections that facts don't offer you. One of the, the biggest problems everybody has had with trying to talk about doping and cycling uh, over the last few years is the, the British libel laws. If you take a book like uh, Willie Vowitz Breaking the Chain, when that was originally published in France, pretty much all the stories had named riders associated with them. So when he talks about an end-of-season classic that a certain cyclist had never won, everybody knew who that cyclist was because he named them. When William Fotheringham translated that book into English for the British market, all those names were removed. The only names that were allowed to stay in were riders who were dead and weren't going to, to resort to, to libel laws. So you didn't know who that rider was, but there were clues in it that, that you could find out. So the libel laws tend to, to block an awful lot of things that you can or can't say. The idea of a novel is that you can you can say whatever you want, but obviously you can't name names. Uh, now, something like Bad to the Bone was written in 1998. Uh, as far as I remember, it came out in the spring of 1998, which was before the Festina scandal happened. The bad character, bad bad character in in the book is very loosely modelled on Michaela Ferrari, who even in 1998 was known about. Even before the Festina scandal happened, we knew there was stuff going on. We knew there was something strange happening in the sport. And Waddington was able to write uh, an interesting novel about the sport and about doping what doping was, was doing to the individuals within the sport. Now, obviously, Waddington amps the story up to 11 um, and takes it beyond what was really happening. But at, uh, at the same time, 
you get it pointed out that there is something going on. It's a kind of magical realism that I find quite appealing in that book uh, that somehow transcends what could happen in truth but gets to a deeper truth perhaps it's a bizarre book at times i I do i do quite like it um i'm I'm nervous about recommending it to non-cycling people would be the thing i would say about it i think it is a cycling novel very much for cycling fans whereas if if you take something like tim crabbs the rider you're going to recommend that to to anybody who enjoys reading bad to the bone i think is a novel for cycling fans the magical realism is is very good in it uh, uh, as you say and uh, and I, i think it does a good job of trying to explain the milieu of of doping at that time uh, as it was understood if you move forward now to consumed jonathan buds um this is a self-published novel from last year which also takes doping it's more a harder story than about the doping itself and i think what what interested buds in this in this story was looking at the effect of doping on the individual on the guilt um probably i suppose you 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 might make a comparison with crime and punishment in that regard that it's very much about the guilt the character who is doping is feeling and the nature of the doping that that Bud set up is quite, quite, quite extreme, which is what puts it into uh, a horror story. And I, I'm not going to tell you what the doping involves because that kind of gives away something important in the book. Well, let's turn from um, fiction and horror stories to two books, which I suppose are slightly more academic and scholarly in their approach. Um, this is A Sweat of the Gods by Benya Masso and... Um, a Social History of the Tour de France by uh, Christopher Thompson. And these are both books that I am very keen on. And, and I think you know, they would definitely be in my, in my selection. I think every cycling fan should definitely read uh, Sweat of the Gods. And I think most cycling fans should read uh, the, the, the Christopher Thompson as well. The Sweat of the Gods is a fantastic book that was, I think, originally dated to 1998 or something like that and then got updated after that with additional information. And what, what, what Masso does is he starts off at the beginning of cycling's history, uh, the famous races in Parks and Cloud, and points out that everybody knows that an Englishman, James Moore, won the first official cycling race in Parks and Cloud on whatever it was, 31st of May, 1860-something. And Masso then says he didn't. There was another race. And this is the whole point about the book, is that the history you think you know is not always true. Now, he's not being pedantic about things, and he's not going through pointing out errors all the time. He, he picks a couple of individual errors to, to really play with and correct the, the picture of history we have. And well, he goes then through the rest of the history. So he takes the start of the Tour de France. Every, everybody knows at this stage that Lotto was created because there's a falling out between different motor car manufacturers over the, the Dreyfus affair. Um, and that led to the creation of Lotto. Benjamin Masso says that's not entirely true because if you look at the dates, they don't add up. That uh, Lotto doesn't appear till 1900. The Dreyfus affair dates to 1894. 
there's something else going on and he he goes and examines what the other things were going on which is more likely that advertising rates in the rival newspaper La Vilo had gotten too expensive and so these people decided to set up their own newspaper themselves where they would be in control of the advertising rates obviously um, and then that obviously then leads into the creation of the Tour de France as a as a publicity stunt for, for this new newspaper so it's, it's all stuff like that um, and then going through questioning why certain myths arrive. So there is a stage, I'm going to embarrass myself by saying I can't remember the year, um, a stage in Hugo Cobley's tour win, I think it is, from Brieve to Agen, where he is supposed to have stayed out in front of the peloton on his own all day uh, and held a whole chasing peloton off, sort of like the way Floyd Landis did in 2006. And when Maso looks at it, what he finds is that the peloton simply didn't chase the guy, that rather than him holding off a chasing peloton, it was him sitting in front of a peloton that was just happy to, to see him sitting there and only realized at the last minute that they'd given the guy too much rope and only chased then. Um, and what, what Maso does then is to question how does it become accepted that this was a brilliant day? And the answer is that it actually suits everybody for this to have been a, a brilliant feat, that for the riders defeated on the day, they don't want to admit that, you know, we took our eyes off the ball and fell asleep um, and didn't notice what were going, what was going on. It's in their interests to say it was a fantastic ride by a brilliant rival. It's questioning the history uh, of the race and questioning how myths and legends get to be created and become established uh, uh, and become a core part of the sport. That sounds a, a little bit like Herman Chevrolet's book, which I don't think exists in English translation. Um, an extract of it in English translation was in Ruler magazine issue 36, um, and the book's called A Feast of Slyness and Betrayal, um, and it's all about the deal-making and double-crossing that's existed throughout professional cycling's history, really. Well, again, that goes back to the, the early point we were talking about uh, of uh, cycling's history constantly being rewritten, that that deal-making is, is something that has been a, a part of the sport from the beginning. Uh, a few people have talk, talked about it. The more official publications tend to, to forget it happens. Uh, and as different generations come to report the sport and tell the stories, those, those stories that are out there come more to the fore. So I, I think in given what we know about doping and given the, the understanding we have for doping, I suspect that we will probably see a more revisionist generation of histories coming out over the next five to ten years where people are questioning what has gone on and looking at things like deals and stuff like that and taking more Maso's approach to the sport um, and, and not just accepting that everything was wonderful and everything was a, a feat of brilliant athletic endeavour. And Christopher Thompson's book is definitely an academic book and it's got an awful lot of uh, footnotes, also has an awful lot of primary materials research primary mm. sources which which I, I think you often find yourself with these books is there's a kind of echo chamber a story gets told and then it gets printed in another book and then that that story gets picked up into another book and then the third author comes along and says well it's in these two places therefore it must be right and what Christopher Thompson while he is a cycling fan and grew up in 
France or Belgium, I think, and and obviously therefore he speaks French and is able to go to the libraries. He comes at it with the rigor of the academic. If I sound like I'm not as enthusiastic about this book as Sweat of the Gods, personally I am, but I don't think it's for everybody's taste. It is, as you say, an academic book. Uh, it, it is quite dry and quite serious. But I think it's it's a wonderful version of, of the history of the Tour de France. The, one of the things I took out of it was what does the Tour de France mean to different people and what has it meant the, in, down through the ages? Did it ever mean anything in and of itself that we know it was created as a, as a publicity event? Um, but over the years, it has had all sorts of different meanings uh, uh, ascribed to it by by different people with competing agendas. And what Thompson is doing is looking at some of the meanings that uh, people like the Scrange tried to impose upon the race themselves, the meanings that they liked. So the idea of the bike riders as workers of the pedal uh, and not just not dilettante sports people, that they were good common earthy souls doing 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 a decent job and all all those meanings that you can put onto the race yourself or find in the race um that that's to me that that was the, the really good thing about the way thompson looked at it i enjoyed that chapter particularly the discussion of whether the tour de france was on the right or the left whether it was siding with the bosses or the workers <laughs> because the, there's a, there's this great debate even now about whether cycling is left or right wing it could be that it's left wing because it's very democratic accessible and all all those all those things and often you find many people who ride a bike um, to get around you know will be on 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 the left for one reason or another and the the car is associated with with sort of capitalism Um, and insofar as we see the bicycle and and the car as opposing forces and we'd see the bicycle on on one side but then then again you see people like Boris Johnson and all these Tories um, on their bikes and the bicycle as freedom and, and individuality and not having to take the bus and not having to be in hock to the state and and to have your freedom and and your strength uh, as an individual be what propels you forward so the bicycle is ambiguous but the the tour in those early days definitely seemed to me to be on the side of the bosses very much. The great thing about the tour is, I think, it, it can be all things to all people. But if you were to try and look at it objectively, I think you would have to say in the early days, it was very. It had to be very much in, in for the bosses. I mean, the the, the Scrooge was a dictator. It, it was his way or the highway. There are many riders who got blocked from riding the Tour de France because he took a dislike to them. There are riders who lost the Tour de France or nearly lost the Tour de France because he took a dislike to them. He was the puppet master pulling the strings, uh, which you can do to an extent in cycling as a sport, that you can make things advantageous more towards one individual or another. So you you, you can take something like the, the route of this year's race suits a certain type of rider over another type of rider. So the organizers are clearly showing favoritism there. Uh, in the early days, this conge wasn't just doing simple little favoritism, things like that. He, he was actively getting involved in choosing who the, who the winner was. So you can go back to 1904, the trouble race where all the results got rewritten uh, four or five months after. It suited this grange for Maurice Garin to win that race uh, because he was riding for a, a French manufacturer called La Francais, who happened to be shareholders in, in Lotto. And Lotto had partly been responsible for the creation of, of 
the myth of Morris Garan uh, as a brilliant ra- uh, as a brilliant racer. So they kind of owned a portion of Morris Garan, and Morris Garan sponsored uh, owned a portion of them. So it was very beneficial all round for, for for Garan to win. So some of the cheating that went on in that race was the officials fee- handing food to Garan on the road, which was specifically banned by the rules. Um, that's them trying to make sure that, that Garan has the most advantages on his side, allowing him to go on and win the race. So yes, uh, uh, as you say, it's very much in the hands of the bosses. The, the, the workers had very little say. If you go through to 1924, Thompson discusses it quite in detail. You, you come to the Henry Policia story, where Henry is your, your typical shop steward screaming out for workers' rights and the Scrange has no intentions of listening to him and the two end up having this great titanic struggle uh, that Albert Londres is uh, is on hand to report. And it's interesting that that workers versus the bosses has its echoes in the 1960s when doping first came to really be a subject that people were worrying about and Jacques Anquetil standing up for the freedom of the of the workers to to work in the way that they chose i.e to have whatever doping that they they wanted and people concerned i suppose about welfare and also the image of the sport were taking a different line and and that was that same conflict between uh between the boss class and, and the worker class thompson does a, a fairly good section on doping and the, the way it developed in the peloton. Uh, the Ankatol thing is the rider saying, we deserve to be treated like adults. We deserve to be allowed to make our own choices. Give us the information on how bad a product is and let us make, our, make the choices for ourselves. So it's, a, it's an argument against paternalism, um, which is a, a seductive argument. And it is an argument that I think the UCI bought through to the 1990s and maybe even through to the early de- the early parts of, of the new millennium just hope that the riders themselves know what they're doing and aren't going too far so if you go back to 1997 and the hematocrit test coming in that was the riders requesting it themselves um as a way of controlling what they were doing um so so that's the, the, there is that balance between respecting the riders and and bossing them around. But at the same time as the tour was respecting the riders' right to dope, uh, the tour was also imposing more and more stress on them with split stages on a day, bringing about the the Bernardino story in the 1970s of the the rider strike in in Valenstegen. Another highlight for me of the Thompson book is his discussion of gender and images of masculinity and femininity in cycling which I think has still has has relevance today given the parlous state of women's cycle sport compared to um, other other sport that the women compete athletics for instance on an equal footing and and the idea of cyclists as these hyper virile hyper masculine figures who suffer greatly physical mental torture that cycling is about punishment and that these are very male attributes or male activities cycling hasn't recovered from that perception or that presentation of the sport and and in a sense there's a lot going on in the sport that still presents cycling in that light at times we're probably too macho with the view of the sport we we present 
event. Um, we love stories about Tyler Hamilton riding all the way around the Tour de France with a broken shoulder uh, uh, and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's hard not to be macho about it. The opposite side of the coin, though, is that when you come to, to women's racing, we tend to be very effete about it and, and don't like the idea of, of, of women crashing uh, as bad as men or climbing mountains uh, as fast as men. That it, it that's for some reason offends people's sensibilities. And even if you look in the UK and and look at the way women's racing is reported in the UK, Victoria Pendleton, with Victoria Pendleton, people very much sold the girly girly picture um, and totally missed the real story that was going in in going on in the background of, of the trouble she was having personally and the trouble she was having within the team. Um, and move, look at the, the other women uh, that the media like within cycling in the UK. It, it is they still like the girly girly type of rider, uh, and they they don't talk about they don't try and t- treat the female riders as equals to the male riders. Very true. Well, it's been a tremendous uh, tour d'horizon of um, cycling books um, that are out now about the tour. Are there any books that you'd like to see written? Um, books that that you think uh, could be written and could improve what we uh, what we know about about the tour. <laughs> I'd like to see less books written about the tour. Is the truth? Uh, fewer books written about the tour. Um, I'd, I'd like to see more focus on fitting the tour within cycling's ecosystem. I understand why publishers write about the tour because it gets an awful lot of media coverage, and those are the books that people will see and go, "I've seen that in telly. I'll buy that book." Um, they're not going to go in and buy a book about the Giro de Lombardia. So if we do have to write about the Tour de France, I, I'd like to see how the tour fits into the general ecosystem uh, of cycling, that books acknowledging that other races exist. Maso Sweat of the Gods is very good in that. It's not a history of the Tour de France. It's trying to be a history of cycling that is tour-centric. So you do get to discuss races like the Giro d'Italia as well. A lot of the other books... The only race that that exists is the Tour de France, and there are aspects of the tour of the Tour de France, the, the stuff that I've I've been looking at myself over the last few years of something like the Criterium circuit that used to exist in the month after the Tour de France. It still exists to an extent today that riders will go having ridden the 3,000 kilometres around France in July through August. They will bounce around France, Belgium, the Netherlands, chasing short criterium races where they get paid quite generous uh, appearance fees and in the old days before salaries became fair uh, the criteriums were where riders actually made their money for a year you could double your salary effectively by riding criteriums but you have to ride 15 20 20 of those in a month after having ridden the tour de france and that's what i find fascinating is that you you have this horror story of how difficult how difficult the the tour is how hard it is to ride 3000 kilometers and then a week later you you have these guys popping off all around the country doing vast amounts of traveling between races uh, and doing these criterium races which are showcase races insofar as the result is fixed but it's very hard to fix riding along at 50 kilometers an hour you've still got to be able to put out the power to do that so there's stuff like that that i'd like to see talked about I was talking with Fergal McKay and you can find his book reviews online at podiumcafe.com. 
and I've put more details about all the books discussed in this podcast on the Bike Show website at www.thebikeshow.net. On the subject of books, my own book, Lost Lanes, 36 Glorious Bike Rides in Southern England, has been out a few months now, and it's been getting some very nice reviews, I'm pleased to say. The reviewer at the road.cc website said it was, and I quote, pretty damn perfect, destined to become a classic and beloved by thousands of new cyclists. Well, that's good, isn't it? If you've not already got your copy, then don't fear, there are still copies available. You can find it at your local bookshop, or you can help me by buying it direct. You can find out more about the book, including a 64-page online preview, and place your orders at The Bike Show's website. That's thebikeshow.net. Thanks for listening, and until next week, goodbye.